We are thrilled to be in this series and um, on perspective. We've been in John for the last several weeks looking at our perspective of Jesus. And today we're wrapping up this first part of John, John chapter 5. And as we think over the last several weeks, um, we looked at Jesus in the first chapter. He said he was the word. And so we saw how he was the word. And then we saw he was the lamb. Then we saw he was greater. All that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus at a wedding. And he asked, we talked about our perspective of what alcohol can do and what it does to us. In the last half of John chapter 2, we saw uh, Jesus angry in the temple and turning over the tables and dealing with those selling. And then in John chapter 3, we saw uh, Jesus uh, being talked to by Nicodemus and sharing with him the truth and what it meant to be born again. Then last week in John chapter 4, we got to look at his conversation with the Samaritan woman and how important conversations are. We've encouraged you. Uh, this week, we're so excited for our groups to be kicking off, both our, our city groups, our coaching groups, our explore groups. In fact, some of them have already met today. We are so thrilled with that. And so um, how important conversations in our life are. And then today, we're here to John chapter 5. And J- J- Jesus comes to a man that needs healed. And you would think that would be the main part of this chapter and how important it was, but really we see some that doubted who he was. They never saw the resemblance that he carried with his father. And he wanted them to see the resemblance that he had to God the Father. And so today that's what we're going to look at. And we get thinking about resemblance. This week I was excited uh, to talk about this passage. I was trying to think, like, we always try to find something that we can kind of pull you in with to make you like, okay, I want to listen to what this guy has to say. By the way, never um, baptize your son and give him a hug. My shoe is soaked. I'm up here squishing in my shoe because we love to make big splashes. I feel bad. You can see all the water sitting over there, but I forgot about the fact. So my socks and shoes, like every time I do this, I can feel water squishing between my toes. So it's great. But no, so I'm trying not to be thinking about that. All right. But I was thinking about family resemblance. A couple weeks ago, I got to go out to eat with Travis and his family. Travis is our lead pastor. He's over in Lyon today and in... Um, He has four kids, and his four kids are full of life and energy. And his youngest son, Tavin, is six years old. And we were sitting at the table, and one of the things about Travis is, if you don't know Travis very well, if Travis wasn't a pastor and he wasn't a musician, I swear he would be a magician. He loves magic. And so he is always talking about magic. Anytime he sees magic, man, it just gets him excited. And and when Travis is excited, he holds his hands like this, and he starts doing this with him. And if you know Travis very well, he has extremely long fingers. And you, some of you don't know that. Now you're going to look. Next time you shake his hand, you're going to be like, let me see how long you... But he has extremely long fingers. Well, his son, Tavin, is sitting at the table talking to him, and he starts imitating his father. And it was like spot on. As a six-year-old, he had his dad down to a T, and it was so hilarious. I almost spit my drink out. It was so funny to me. And so next time I asked Tavin, I don't know, because he's gets distracted real easy, but see if he'll imitate his dad. But it was so uncanny. And I got thinking about family resemblance and I, I thought about my family. So I have uh, three kids. My oldest son, Caleb is down in seminary in North Carolina. Uh, you saw my daughter, Chloe was able to baptize someone today. And then Liam was the, the last one that I got baptized. That's my youngest son. He's 15. And there's definitely some family resemblance in our family. My daughter, for instance, and we love all our kids. So Please preface with what I'm about to say is I love my kids immensely and they all love Jesus and I'm so glad to have them. But I'm going to say some things you're going to be like, man, I can't believe you said that about your kid. All right. So just hang in there. 
First of all, my daughter Chloe is, if you know Chloe and you talk to her, her personality and my personality are extremely close. I mean, she is very determined, she's very opinionated, and we both love to argue. So when we get in an argument, it's pretty tense. Because neither one of us will back down and we'll go on forever. My daughter will argue, even if she knows she's wrong, just to try to get you to change your mind. For instance, she, uh, she once thought that waters, I mean that refrigerators make their own water. Like you don't have to hook up a water line to them. Like just magically ice comes. And I'm like, Chloe, it has a water line going in. The, no, it doesn't. It just makes its own ice. And literally she argued with me. I'm like, you cannot be this not wise. Um, my son Liam, when the first two were born, they came out blonde hair, blue eyes. That's what I looked like back when I had hair. It was great. It was beautiful blonde hair back in a long time ago. So my wife's like, am I ever going to get a child that looks like me? And along came Liam. And Liam popped out with the brown curly hair and the brown eyes. He looks like his mom. His personality is most like his mom when he's not trying to be a cool 15-year-old. He actually has a lot of empathy and compassion and is very in tune more with his emotions than the other two because the other two are Martins and we don't have emotions. We just, like, we just go on. And so then my oldest son, Caleb. So I have, I'm, I'm excited today because my mom and dad are here. They're sitting over here. They came to see their grandson get baptized. So I want to say they came to hear me preach, but it was more to see their grandson get baptized. But up here I have a picture of my dad. And this is my dad. And you wonder where I get resting berry face. That's right there where I get it from, all right? So there is my dad. And here is my oldest son, Caleb, that also can do the eyebrow. Now... We just moved a month ago, but there are pictures of my dad when he was uh, five, six, seven years old and pictures of my son when he was five, six, seven years old. And you'd think you were looking at the same besides ones like in black and white and faded and all that, but they look very similar. Um, there are pictures of my grandfather, my dad's dad and me that you would be like, wow. And unfortunately, the thing that really puts us out is the nose. I have a, a Roman nose. It's Roman all over my face. But um, me and my grandpa look very similar. And there, there's a definite family resemblance. My wife is a weirdo. When my dad is in town and me, my dad, and my son go someplace, she'll walk behind us to record us walking because we all walk the same way. And she's like, it's, it's, so, it's so uncanny. And it's like, it's, it, it is weird, but we have a definite family resemblance. And I appreciate you all. You're kind of stuck having me go down this path of talking about my family. So I appreciate you listening. I'm now going to move on to the part of the message that you'll all be interested in. But all of us... Whether we like it or not, we have some family resemblance. Some of us, we don't mind being known as whatever our last name is. A few weeks ago, during the Lions game against the Chiefs, they had the Hutchinson family cam that they would show every time Aiden Hutchinson on the field would make a play. They had a camera on his mom and dad. And man, his dad was an NFL lineman, and they're so proud of their son being an NFL lineman. And you could see the family resemblance. It was easy to see, and they were so proud. And many times, we're, we're okay with being known as, I'm a Martin. I'm, I know I'm a Martin through and through. But some of us, we might be like, I don't, I don't want to be known with my family. You know, sometimes we're cool as kids and we don't want anybody to say, well, you act just like your parents. Like, that's like the death sentence, you know what I mean? Like, oh, they're so uncool and you're saying I look and act like them. But maybe some of us have faced trauma in our life. Maybe some of us have had um, some serious family issues that we want to kind of separate from our family. We don't want people to know who we're from or where we're from or who we're related to. 
Some of us, we try to have that separation because it brings back bad memories or bad thoughts or it just wells up some stuff inside of us that we haven't dealt with or we're dealing with. I want to encourage you today that regardless of where you're at, regardless of what family you come from, there is a Father in heaven that loves you. And he wants you to be known by his name. In fact, his greatest desire is to have a relationship with you and to let you know that he loves you unconditionally. And he wants you to carry a family resemblance. In fact, when we know Jesus and when we know God the Father and we start to look like him, it brings us a peace and a joy that's greater than any other family name we could ever carry. And so today, as we close out this first part of John in John chapter 5, we're going to look at Jesus And he's trying to change the perspective of these Jewish leaders so that they would see him as the son of God. So they would see him at who he really was. And today, we're going to think about what's our perspective of Jesus. But before we jump in, could we just take a moment and pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today that you do love us and that you do care about us. And the opportunity today to celebrate these stories of life change and these baptisms, both in the first service and this, Lord, and how exciting it is to see uh, both uh, young people and adults that have chosen to give their life to you and, and are not afraid to be, identif- to be identified with you. God, I ask over the next few minutes that you would just clear our hearts and our minds, remove the distractions uh, from us, that we would be able to focus on what Scripture has to say, on what your Holy Spirit is prompting and leading us to. God, we ask for those that are searching today, those that don't know you as their Savior, I ask that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, would be plain and clear to them. I ask that you would uh, help me to say the words that you want me to say, that I would get out of the way and allow you to use me. Well, thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you have a copy of Scripture, we're in John chapter 5 today, and I, I just want to give you a little background and John chapter 5, it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast. We're not sure exactly what feast it was. The Jews had a lot of traditions, a lot of feasts. So we're not exactly sure what feast he was up there for. But near the temple, just north of the temple, was an area called the Pool of Bethesda. And the Pool of Bethesda was a place that um, there was special healing that would go on in this pool. Every day an angel would come down and would stir the water. And whoever was the first into the pool would be healed. You sound, that, that sounds magical. That sounds crazy. And you can say all that, but what's interesting is as we read history, outside of Scripture, we read history. When the Greeks and the Romans took over this pool, they tried to assess, they tried to attribute what was going on at this pool to a Greek God. So there was definitely things going on while the Jews were in part of it. But here was the, the rub. They said that there was five porticos around this pool. And for years... People like this, this had to be some place that was just tradition. It, it couldn't have really existed because there's no way you could have five porticos around the pool. It's impossible. You could have four. There's four sides, but you couldn't put a fifth. And then in the late 1800s, 1888, they uncovered the pool of Bethesda. And I think we've got a picture of it here just to give you a little visual. But basically what they found was the pool was divided into two areas. There was an upper part and a lower part. The upper part was fed by a fresh spring that would trickle down into the lower part to continually cleanse that water. And what they found was the division, there was a portico built right in the middle. That then there was five porticos 
around this pool. So this is an actual place. This isn't some imaginary story. This isn't something that uh, might have took place. This really did take place. At this pool was a, a man that had been there for 38 years. For 38 years, he was at the side of the pool wanting to be healed. The problem was he was lame. He couldn't walk. And the saddest part of me to this, this story is that for 38 years, he had no one to help him get to the water. Think about that. Most of you, as I look around this room, are sitting next to someone. There's a few of you here that are by yourself, but I would say that most of us, if not all of us in this room, if we said, would there be one person that would carry you down to a pool if they knew it would heal you? Most of us could come up with one person. This guy sat there by himself for 38 years. No one. Not one person gave enough care to come help him get in the water. So for 38 years, he got to see other people get up and walk or receive their sight or their hearing or be healed of diseases. And he just lays there. Cool thing, though, is along comes Jesus. And Jesus, in verse number 8, says this to him. John 5, verse 8, he said, Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. That day was the Sabbath. For 38 years, no one would help this man. And along comes Jesus, and in eight words, he changes his life. Eight words, he changes his life. It just took Jesus eight words to make this man's life better than it ever was before. Scripture says that he was healed immediately. I don't think this was something that he stood up slowly and wobbled around and, and, hey, I feel better and maybe my legs work. No, I think he got up right away, folded up his bed and took off. What we see here is the power of Jesus' words. We see the power of his words. Jesus comes along and in eight words he can drastically change this man's life. Something that he had waited 38 years for that he could never achieve on his own. He could never get to that pool on his own. Jesus walks up out of the clear blue and talks. And what's funny is if you read that passage, it's like he's making excuses why. He doesn't know he's talking to Jesus. He doesn't know he's talking to the Son of God. He just thinks some man is coming up making fun of him. Well, why don't you get in the water? Because he doesn't know that Jesus has the power in his words to change his life. See, Jesus' words have power. His words hold a power like any other man has ever spoken. His words are the words that speak life. His words are the words that speak truth. His words are the words that speak grace, that bring light. His words can drive sickness and disease away. His words can bring healing and peace to our hearts and our minds. His words can calm a raging sea. His words can mend the brokenhearted. His words can bring life to the dead, sight to the blind, sound to the deaf, strength to the weak. His words can bring courage to the fearful. We think about it, the question we ask ourselves is, has Jesus spoken into our life? Have we allowed the words of Jesus to change our life? All through Scripture, we see Jesus claiming, claims of one of the biggest claims he makes. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Only his words can change our life. When we think about the power of words, James 3 says the tongue is such a little member of our body yet it can cause such great fires. 
and bring trouble. If we're a follower of Christ, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, do our words bring healing or hurt? Think about the words that we speak to others. When we think about the words that we share with others, do our words heal or hurt? We live in a society where we can get on social media and we can post things that we would never dream about saying to someone face to face. What's discouraging and is unfortunate is as many of us that claim to know Jesus Christ and claim to follow him are so quick to stand for the truth, but we forget to extend the grace of God in our words. Jesus' words brought life. No, he never backed down on calling out sin. He never backed down on pointing out, like, hey, what you're doing is wrong. But he always brought life with his words. And if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we need to be careful that our words don't bring hurt but healing. We need to share the gospel of Christ. We need to let those around us know who he is. So Jesus comes to this man and in eight words, he changes his life. But there was a phrase that I highlighted in the last part that I wrote. It says, but it was the Sabbath. So there's an issue. So in verse number 10 of John chapter 5, it goes on to say this. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. <laughs> How arrogant. This guy's been laying there for 38 years and you're going to bust him on the day he decides to pick up his bed and walk because it's the Sabbath? Oh, sorry, you got healed. You should lay there one more day before you pick up your bed. I, I thought it was. You guys are just like, oh, whatever. All right. But he answered them. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, because there was a crowd in the place. He got healed. He doesn't even know it's Jesus yet. He's like, all I know is this guy came. He said to take up my bed and walk. I've been laying here for 38 years. I forgot it was a Sabbath. I apologize. And these guys say, well, who is the guy that healed you? And you're hoping that, man, maybe they're so excited that Jesus has the power to heal people. They want to meet him. That's not what they're looking for. In fact, they're upset that he's doing this on the Sabbath. And they're upset because they like, we've heard about this guy. Because in this passage, Jesus is about to rip the band-aid off to let people know who he is. He's, he's kind of kept it on the down low the first four chapters. Some people are starting to figure it out, but here's where he announces it. So in verse number 14 of John chapter 5, it says this. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So now we've gone from the pool of the Bethesda to the temple. Now this is where all the religious leaders are. This is where all the Sanhedrin is. This is where they're hanging out. And he said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It goes on to say in verse 16. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeing, seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This was the rub with the Jewish leaders. Not only was he healing on the Sabbath, not only was he causing people to work on the Sabbath, because carrying your bed is work and you can't do that on the Sabbath. 
But now he's claiming to be equal with God. And unfortunately, they miss the person of the miracle. See, they understood what Jesus was claiming. There are preachers and teachers out there today that will tell you that Jesus laid aside his Godhead to become fully man so that he could die for us on the cross. I disagree strongly. Because if we look at this passage in John chapter 5, we see that these religious leaders understood what Jesus was claiming to be. At this point, they understand clearly that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, that he's claiming to be equal with God, that he's claiming that he is God. They had no doubt in their mind. That's why they wanted to kill him. This is blasphemy. How dare you claim to be God? Jesus didn't say our father. He said he's my father. He says the work that my father's done, I'm now doing. This was their issue. This was the problem they had was that Jesus said that he was God. They're missing the person of the miracle. He wanted them to see the resemblance to his father. In fact, in verse number 19, he says this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. It goes on in verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Verse 24 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, And believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Here, in these few short verses, Jesus gives the truth of the gospel to these men. But they miss the person of the miracle. They miss who he is. They can't see it. They're blinded by their hatred. They're blinded by their tradition. They're blinded by all their knowledge. They don't see That this is the Son of God standing before them. This is the Messiah that they've been hoping for. They missed it. I was looking at this passage and thinking about it. I had to think about when people look at me, what do they see? When people look at us, do they see Jesus? Jesus wants them to see that he's God. He's trying to reflect the Father. He wants them to see that, hey, I'm the Son of God. I'm the guy you're looking for. I'm the guy you've been studying and waiting on. I'm him. They missed it. In our life, is our desire to reflect Jesus? All through these first five chapters, we've talked about who Jesus is and what our perspective of him. In chapter one, John talked about he's the light. I want to reflect the light. In our conversations with people, do we reflect Jesus? Do people see the resemblance we have to our heavenly father when we talk to him? If you're a mom or a dad and I were to come to your house this afternoon and have a conversation with your kids, and I were to say, who do your parents reflect? Who do they act like? Would one of the things they say is they act like Jesus? If tomorrow I were to follow you to work and I were to talk to your 
fellow co-workers or I were to talk to your employees or I were to talk to your boss. Or to say, who does so-and-so reflect? Who do they act like? What do you see when you see them? What would they say? What's exciting for me today is as we baptize those people and so many different people came up and were able to baptize, it was exciting to see that those people reflected Jesus in those people's lives. Some of you are sitting here today because somebody looked like Jesus. And they talked to you and they shared the good news of the gospel and they shared what God had done for them and what God had done in their life. And it looked a little bit like Jesus to you. He said, you know what? What you have is what I want. I want to be known as a Christ follower. I want to be known as a Christian. It reflected Jesus. Today, we should celebrate that. That's why not only are we cheering for those that are baptized, we're also cheering for those that are doing the baptizing because in their life, they've reflected Jesus so much that this person said, hey, this person reminds me of Jesus. I want them to baptize me. When people look at us, do they see Jesus? This passage closes out, and this is a great chapter, and I've got four minutes and 50 seconds left that I'm trying to get this in. But I want to encourage you to read John chapter 5 and just let it sink in because there's a lot of good stuff in this chapter. But in John chapter 5 and verse 33, Jesus says, I'm going to show you why I am who I say I am. There's some witnesses out there that show this. He said, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He said, John the Baptist came. You got all excited about John the Baptist. You thought it was a reincarnation of Old Testament prophet. Man, you are thrilled to hear what he has to say. The problem is, what he was saying was that I'm the son of God. There's the first witness. He goes on. In verse 36, he said, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father is giving me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He said, not only does John the Baptist witness for me, he said, the miracles that I'm performing, what I'm doing should show you that there's something special about me. I'm not normal. I'm not just some other guy. I'm not just some other teacher. I'm not just some other rabbi. I am the Son of God. Look what I've done. Later on in the Gospels, they say if they were to write books, the world could not even contain all the books that would explain all the things that Jesus had done. He doesn't stop there, though. Verse number 37, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. How did he bear witness? His voice, you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom has sent. Verse 39, you search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John the Baptist bears witness. Jesus' works bear witness. He said, but the Father bears witness to me. How? Through the scripture. He said, the scripture that you have memorized. Unfortunately, you know the word of God, but you don't know the God of the word. You have all this head knowledge. You're proud of how much you know, but you don't even know what you're talking about. You're just spouting off facts. You don't know who I am. You've missed it. This brings us to the last question I'm going to throw up here for you today, and it's this. What is your perspective of Jesus? What do you see Jesus as? 
Who is he in your life? Do you see him as the Son of God? Do you see him as the Messiah? Has he been your Savior? Has he become your Lord in Christ? Some of us, we don't want to let go. In fact, Jesus understood that with these guys. John 5, 44, he said this to them. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He says, you're so stuck in your pride and your knowledge that you're missing the point. I was talking with my dad last night. My dad is like a walking concordance and commentary on scripture. You think I'm joking. Think of something in the Bible. Walk up to my dad after church today and ask him. He'll have an answer for you. And even if he doesn't know, he, he's really intelligent so he can make it sound like he does. So I'm saying. We were talking last night and we were talking about how pride really is the first sin. Both Eve and Adam had this pride that they wanted to be like God. For some of us, we might not think it's pride, but pride really is what's holding us back from the faith to believe in Jesus. See, because we always say, hey, our faith is great, not because of us, but because of who we put our faith in. That doesn't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The faith is there. What varies is my pride. And some of us today, we, we, we have such a hard time believing and having faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, we might give it lip service. We might understand what Scripture says. But in our heart, we can't make that commitment. I, didn't, I, didn't, I was there when my son did his story, but I didn't think about... Today, even when he talked about it, he said, I, I was too high and mighty. And it, it was like, wow, that goes with exactly what I'm talking about today. And some of you, you, you think you have it figured out, or maybe you think I can't figure it out, so it just can't be true. Can I encourage you that Jesus Christ loves you? And the reason he came so that he could pay the price for your sin John understood this. Later on, John writes a letter in first number, uh, John, first John 5. I'm skipping all around, Judy. I'm sorry. First John says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Somebody once said this. When you look at Jesus, there's only three conclusions you can come to. He's either the Lord... He's a liar or he's a lunatic. There's no middle ground. Because a lot of people say, well, Jesus was a good teacher. No, Jesus claimed to be the son of God. If I got up here and claimed that, you'd say I'm a liar and a lunatic. You wouldn't say I'm a good teacher. What if I got up here and at the end I said, by the way, I just want you to know that you've been listening to the son of God speak to you today. He'd be like, it disqualified everything else I said because you're like, that guy's nuts. So you can't sit here and say, well, Jesus is a good teacher. He was a good man. He's either your Lord or he's a liar and a lunatic. The question is, what's your perspective of him today? You have to decide. And over the past eight weeks, we've done our best to show you that Jesus is the son of God. And he loves you. And he's done all the work. On the cross, he paid the price for your sins so that you could have eternal life. 
that you may know. I don't have to live in doubt. I, I know January 22nd, 1978, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I know that I have a relationship with him. My life hasn't always reflected it. I haven't always made the right choices, but I know Jesus is my Savior. And today, you can know that for sure. So right now, I'm just going to ask us to bow our heads in an attitude of prayer. And today, if you've heard what Scripture has to say, don't take what I have to say. Take what Scripture has to say. Maybe today, your perspective of Jesus is finally like that light bulb has gone off in your head where you say, hey, He is the Son of God. And today, you want to put your faith and trust in him for the first time. If that's your prayer right now, would you just say something like this to him? Say, God, I I confess my sins to you. Jesus, I believe that you are God. And I believe that you paid the price for my sins on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead three days later. Jesus, best I know how, I lower my pride and I put my faith and trust in you and only you. I receive you as the Lord of my life. God, for those that made that decision for the first time today, I ask that right now your Holy Spirit would just speak peace and comfort to their mind and their heart. Lord, it's doesn't mean that they're going to feel different or special or anything like that, but Lord, that they know that they've put their faith and trust in you. I ask that you would give them that assurance of that. We know that in heaven today, you're rejoicing for those that have made you their heavenly father that now bear a resemblance with you. But I ask that for those of us that know you as our savior, that we would reflect you in our life that people would see you when they look at us. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So can we give it up for those that today put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If that was your decision today, could I just encourage you with something? We believe at Mile City that moving together is better, that you shouldn't try to do life alone. We're all about you being in a community that encourages and supports you. So if you would let us know that you made that decision today, there's a couple ways that you can do it. If you're tech savvy, you can text the word Mile City to 94,000. There's going to be a prompt on there that says, I put my faith in Christ today. Text that. Just let us know. We'll pray for you. We'll answer any question that you might have.